Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I want to talk to you a little bit about the Benedict Option. Now, those of you who have listened to this podcast regularly will know that the Benedict Option was a book uh, by Orthodox writer uh, Rod Dreher, who writes for the American Conservative. He recently came on, on The Van Maren Show to talk about his new book, Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. And the book just before that one talked about how Christians needed to create sustainable communities and within those communities to develop, uh, you know, methods of educating the youth and raising them in, in, in Christian ways, of having Christian education available, essentially of creating subcultures. And this idea isn't a new one uh, to a large extent. You know, you, the homeschooling movement, especially in the United States, is huge. There is, there's a longstanding recognition uh, since, you know, probably the 1960s and 70s by many Christians that the mainstream of the culture had been fundamentally lost to Christians and that they were going to need to create subcultures in which they preserved Christian culture in order to ensure that their families and their children were raised uh, with their beliefs. And I spend a lot of time uh, over on my blog, uh, you know, in my columns at LifeSite and other places, taking a look at where this has been tried throughout, not just the United States and Canada, but throughout the world, because it's a challenge that Christians everywhere in the West are facing. How do we live in the face of a culture that's fundamentally fallen apart, right? The, you know, the, the root word of, of culture is cultus, which means center. Well, we are not part of the center of the culture anymore, and the Overton window has shifted so far to the left. Left, that you know, there's you know drag queens reading stories to kids at public libraries now, and and most of the LGBT agenda is funded by the government, including uh, their parades. So, in the face of that, how do Christians uh, create communities, sustainable communities, where they can raise their families in peace and safety? And one of the the folks that I've wanted to talk to on this podcast for a while on that subject specifically is Reverend Douglas Wilson, who is a, a reformed and evangelical theologian in Christ Church. Uh, at Christ Church, pardon me, in Moscow, Idaho. He's a he's a faculty member at St. Andrew's College. He's an author and a speaker. He's probably best known for a lot of the controversial things he said, uh, some of which I disagree with and some of which I don't. Interestingly enough, I'll, I'll leave that to one side because calling somebody controversial these days is, is boring, and he's actually going to explain why he's taken some of the stances he's taken in the duration of our conversation. But one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to Reverend Wilson is because what they've created in Moscow, Idaho, is is incredibly fascinating. Uh, church members own a lot of the major businesses in downtown Moscow. Um, they've they've really been become part of the infrastructure of the city in a way that makes them impossible to uproot or cancel. They have a Christian college. They have a Christian school. Um, they have multiple churches. And what they're doing there is creating a really fascinating Christian community that just is, isn't just a Benedict option. It isn't so much about withdrawal, uh, so much as integration, but you know, achieving the critical mass necessary to essentially force um, the, the, the culture around them to, to sit up and, and take note. This has been done by a few other religious groups as well, most noticeably um, by uh, by the SSPX Catholics in, in Kansas have done this. So there's a few other groups where, you know, a, a huge number of people have moved to a certain place, sort of set up camp, and they have the critical mass to impact the cultural fabric around them, and in many cases even impact um, local governance. But um, the, the Christchurch example 
is very interesting. And, and again, uh, I'm using this as an example of the Benedict option of a coherent Christian community. So regardless of what you think of Wilson's beliefs or his writing or his demeanor, and he's written, I think, 90 books at this point, um, Some again, some of which I really liked and some of which I didn't care for. Um, but what he's managed to accomplish with, with his team, with his community there in Moscow, I think, um, really, really begs uh, a second look, because this is something I think all Christian communities are going to have to think about long and hard in the years to come. And I do think that that Wilson and the folks at Christ Church have uncovered um, a number of, of principles that we need to understand in order to ensure that we uh, don't make mistakes and that we start to do the same thing. So without further introduction from me, this is my conversation with Reverend Douglas Wilson, a pastor and theologian at Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. What's really interesting about about what you embarked on after that is that really, and I, I've said this for for a long time, uh, that the primary cleverness of of Rodriguez Benedict option was uh, his 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 copywriting of something that had existed for a very long time, uh, and just sort of every everything that resembled living out the Christian faith in public and in a strategic way was sort of lumped in under under this one title. And there was a very interesting article on on how you embarked on that in 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 uh in moscow from the masculinist i don't know if you've ever seen if you if you've seen that analysis of, of what's going on in moscow yeah but i saw that yeah what's interesting to me is is how deliberate this was because there's very few church communities that deliberately set out to influence the community in the way that that you do so could you kind of describe um, the strategic thinking that went into that and sort of how you embarked on it? Because it's not uh, it, it's not common uh, for Christian leaders to do that sort of thing beyond, you know, doing good things in the community like soup kitchens and helping homelessness and, you know, evangelism and that sort of thing. What you've done in Moscow is that plus something quite different and, and quite unique. Uh, yeah. One of the advantages of doing this in a small town is that it's it doesn't take a long time before those efforts begin to register. Um, so uh, from the beginning, although my, although my father was not a post-millennialist, um, the, most of the rest of us are, which means that we expect the influence of Christian teaching and the gospel to get into everything. It's not just a, and part of the problem of most evangelical churches in North America is that even the most ambitious ones simply want to to grow what they're doing in their church? You know, the, the, let's say they, a little church wants to become a big church, but almost no one wants their town to become a Christian town. Right. Right. And if you read the if you read the Bible the way we do, you think, well, part of our mission it might not happen for fifty years. It might not happen for five hundred. But the Great Commission is explicit in telling us to disciple the nations. That means every local Christian uh, body should be responsible for discipling the area around them. So a Christian church in a small town should be thinking about evangelizing that town, making it a Christian town. And so in practical terms, 
How did you go about that? Because a lot of people will hear what you say, uh, what you just said, and say, "Well, theoretically, I agree with that." But what what makes uh, what makes Moscow different is in in the implementation of, of how you went about establishing a bridgehead in Moscow. Um, one of the fascinating things in that masculinist essay was talking about how you know um, a lot of church members bought up significant real estate in the downtown. You know, they 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 bought. Uh, you know, coffee shops and these sorts of things of a very high quality, a uh, high quality product, high quality service. And that one of the things that this does was it uh-huh. makes it very hard to cancel anybody because, you know, you can't sort of run people out in the rail when, you know, they own the rail. Right. Exactly. So it began, we've been, we've been here since uh, doing what we're doing since the early seventies. Okay. So it's not looked the same at every stage, but early on, we began to build institutions. Probably the first, uh, apart from the church or the churches, the first institution we built was a K through 12 educational program, a classical Christian school, Logos School. So right now, Logos School is just shy of 500 students. Well, Moscow is a town of about a little over 20,000 people. And almost half of that, so let's say uh, a third of that would be university students. And that means that, means that out of the remaining, uh, let's say, 12,000, 13,000 permanent residents, we are about 10% of those residents now, if you add all our churches together. And then to have a private Christian school in a podunk town where the private Christian school is that size, is really remarkable. So uh, we started building institutions, and the idea is uh, if someone moves to, let's say you have a, not a hostile leftist, but let's say a mildly secular uh, professor gets a job at the U of I, and he moves to town, and he starts asking his friends and neighbors, what, what's the best education around? What, what, what's the best school in the area? I want people to be saying, well, uh, I hate to say it, but Logos has consistently got the best test scores and, you know, et, et cetera. They, they know how to educate kids. So we, we started with um, the institutionalization of first Logos school. Then we had um, uh, New St. Andrews College. Then, so when you're building these institutions, like you say, it's pretty hard to tar and feather institutions. And then when in private individuals start um, entrepreneurial efforts, you know, um, where we have a we have a publishing house, we have several several publishing houses actually, we have several online uh, educational institutions, we have two brick and mortar educational institutions, we have four church services, uh, you know, churches and or church services. It's uh, basically. Uh, we, we are thinking in terms of institutions, which is different than, let's say you had a, a successful church in a town like this, and everything boiled down to going door to door, doing evangelism, and handing out tracts. And nothing wrong with that, no, no problem with going door to door at all. But that what you're essentially doing is simply wanting to grow your one church, instead of what's happening here, where the growth of every institution is augmenting 
the growth of all the other institutions. So the rising tide floats all the boats. Now, one of the, the really interesting things is, I, I forget if if you were the one uh, that wrote this or if I read it somewhere else, because <clears throat> I read it a couple of years ago, but there was a the joke about the uh, the Southern Baptist who's, who had, his institutions had raised a lot of money and somebody, a visitor to his campus asked him why he was using all old portable buildings. And he said, because the second you build something nice, the liberals come and take it. Um, <laughs> and I was I was genuinely curious looking at w- what you're building. I've read a lot of books from from Canon Press, um, and and I, and I find what what St Andrews College is being really interesting. I, the most you know the thing I've enjoyed the most is I have a couple of little kids, so the two riot and the dance films that have come out so far have been made for wonderful family watching. It, how do you ensure that the 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 way it started is the way it keeps going in terms of the theological roots, the inherent conservatism of all of it? Because it is true that these things have a tendency to always drift in one direction, and it's rarely more conservative. Yeah. yeah. So what um, there are, we've thought a great deal about this problem, uh, and my my mother uh, graduated from uh, Prairie Bible Institute up. Uh, in Northern Alberta. And the quote you just said, the joke about the Southern Baptist, the president of PBI actually said that. They okay. were, he said, uh, why, why don't you build some nice brick buildings? They had Quonset huts or whatever. And he said he didn't want to build anything nice for the liberals. Right. <laughs> so, um, so one of the things you, you have to do is recognize that liberalism doesn't come swooping in all at once. It, it it gradually encroaches. So I forget who said this, but someone said first a movement, then a business, then a racket. Right. Okay. And when it's halfway between business and racket is when the liberals and, and people are not really that scrupulous or they're, they're chasing money or the main chance or their own career. That's when liberals who don't believe any of this stuff anyway can start latching on can start latching on or burrowing into what you're doing. Um, so one of the things that I've sought to do is, uh, and there are different biblical images that you can use for this, but take the I- image of Elijah uh, pouring water on the altar. Okay, so he, right. in the showdown, uh, okay, if this thing is going to burn, it's going to have to be fire from heaven that makes it burn. If this if this thing is going to go, then it's going to have to be the blessing of God that does it. And so one of the reasons, it's not the only reason, but it's one of the central reasons why I adopted some, you might say, very un-PC stinker opinions and published them early on, was to give PR managers and handlers the fits. Right. So I've been, I grew up in evangelical circles. I've seen that whenever anything promising starts to happen in evangelical circles, it's approximately 15 minutes before the suits and haircuts move in, shrink wrap it, package it, get a PR campaign going, and then they start marketing it. Um, and it's a, a, it's a hustle that evangelicals know how to do. And so I started adopting certain things that were not politically correct. And I did that in order to present an unsurmountable challenge to any PR, uh, 
tidying up such that if this thing is going to be blessed, it's going to have to be God that does it and not the PR department. So in other words, you made yourself impossible to market so people would be attracted to the institutions and what they were doing rather than climbing on board a bandwagon that happened to be making a lot of noise. Right. With the potential of making a lot of money. Right. Right. No, and, and that's that's very interesting because one of the things I've noticed, for example, in, in the Ryan the Dance films, which for listeners who aren't familiar, I, I did review them um, at, at LifeSite News, are, are these nature documentaries, but told from, from a Christian perspective. One of the things that I've been consistently interested in what you're doing is you don't do this thing where, where, where you know, people just tack the word Christian in front of different art forms. And then we get a, you know, a, a kind of a a crappy counterfeit version of what secular people do better. Um, but you guys look at art as art and art should be, should be utilized for the honor and glory of God. So you don't need to tack something in front of it when, when you're creating it, which I, I would say, especially in regards to some of the films and things like that has created a standard of excellence, not frequent that isn't found in God's not dead for, uh, for example, um, what, what was your thinking behind that? Because it's interesting, despite the un-PC opinions that you've taken, you have attracted a lot of people to uh, Moscow and the institutions have consistently grown. It, it, are people attracted to that view of, of Christian art or what would you say the, the secret to that is? It is a mix. Uh, <clears throat> it's a mix and people are, uh, you're right, we've had numerous people um, move here and it's begun. Uh, we're starting to feel like a, uh, a refugee camp. <laughs> where, um, and and I, I call these people who come refugees on the one hand and reinforcements on the other. Uh, but many of them come because it's a variation of I got to get the heck out of California. I can't right. bring my kids up here. Um, I really like what you guys are doing. Some of it would be the arts. Some of it would be. Uh, uh, education opportunities. You know, we sent our kids to New St. Andrews and then they married someone from their class and then they settled down here and then the parents followed them out, that kind of thing. Um, but there's, I would say that one of the central reasons, one of the central um, attractive things about our community here is that we have deliberately not cared about being attractive. And that's attractive. So, um, if there are many, many Christians who are sick unto death of being pastored by men who won't say in the pulpit which, what they actually believe, they, they're, they, they've constantly got their eye out for um, the repercussions or could this make it into the papers. Or, and a lot of people are just ready for the bugle to blow distinctly. So they know what to do. Right. And so what is the relationship of, of the institutions you've built and the, 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 the reformed community, the Christian community in Moscow with the rest of the community? Well, it depends. So um, there are some hostels who hate us, who would run us out of town first if they got an opportunity. There, there are the overt hostels. Then there are you might call chamber of commerce conservatives who would like us find who like what we're doing, who like what we're doing for the local economy, who like what we, what we do for business, but who wish that we weren't so controversial. Right. Right. And they've not yet put it together that we're not the ones causing the controversy. 
the, um, the controversy is coming from the people who are hostile. Um, and there, then there are the other evangelicals, and we've got a, um, uh, I would describe it as a decent, sometimes bumpy, but decent relationship um, with them. And as things have gotten more polarized in America, uh, more mainstream evangelicals have started to catch on to what we've been doing all along. Right. And that's what I was going to ask, because I know uh, I, I know that what, what a lot of the things that you say are obviously extremely controversial. Um, and so what do, what do people look at what you're doing and want to adopt and model it despite that? Because, again, I can't help but notice the attendance, um, you know, at St. Andrews College um, and the programs being offered and all those sorts of things. And and, 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 and you know, in my, in, my, in my email to you initially, I wanted to talk about it as the Benedict, Benedict option. But as I said earlier, I feel like Rod Dreher's Benedict option is really just, um, you know, uh, a, a, a traditionalist name for what a lot of people have been up to all along, but not very successfully, it, 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 it must be said. Um, you know, even if you're looking at the last couple of years with critical race theory, um, with all of these, these, these like fundamentally unchristian or anti-Christian views creeping into Christianity because you've got people uh, who need to hang on to their audiences, they need to be respectable, and the Overton window on what's respectable keeps on shifting so fast, you can pretty much hear the window scream at this point. And so, of course, you know, you see a lot of these sorts of things changing. So do you see a lot of people who are looking to adopt what you're doing in Moscow and try it somewhere else. I know of a few people who've done this in Catholic circles um, in Canada and the United States. So I'm familiar with, with, with non, um, non-Protestants trying it, but is there any other Protestant group that's looking at what you guys are doing and, and, and modeling it? Yeah, I think, I think that there are some other Protestant groups that have, uh, that there are groups out there, Protestant groups, evangelical reformed groups that want to replicate that sort of thing that we're doing. And by God's, and this is all the grace grace of God, by God's grace, we've got five or six critical components that have all hit critical mass. And I know of other places where they've got two or three of the critical components. They've got a healthy, thriving church. They've got a, uh, a school, you know, a school for the kids to go to school, but they don't have a college or, you know, they, they've got different um, pieces and they're, um, I think, within shouting distance of being able to replicate. But by God's grace, we've we've gotten to critical mass where it's starting to take on a life of its own, which is which it has been doing for the last uh, 10 years or, or so. Um and I would say, uh, riffing off of Dreyer's book, I, I, Dreyer's book was decent as far as it, as it went, but I think we're way past the Benedict option because it's going to have to be, a, we're dealing with a resurgent neo-paganism, and it's got to be the Boniface option, I think, where um, Boniface was, you know, there's the tree sacred to Thor, and so Boniface went and chopped it down, uh, you know, it's, Boniface was much more confrontational. My, my criticism of the Benedict option is why on earth, if the bad guys running the show are as bad as Dreher shows them to be, why on earth would they let you go out into the wilderness and build your little community? 
Uh, right. Well, this is this was my primary when I reviewed the book as well. The question I had, and I interviewed him about it for for this podcast as well when the book came out, and I asked him. I said, "Well, like when 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 the orcs are scaling the walls, how do you choose which wall to abandon first? Um, I didn't really follow the logic on the government's coming for us. Get out of politics uh, line. It just didn't it didn't sort of add up to me. And that leads directly to the the next question I wanted to ask is, what would your advice be then for um, Christian groups were starting out who recognize, I think that uh, it's become increasingly clear to anybody whose eyes are wide open that the polarization is very real, that we are not going to be left alone, uh, and that something has to be done about it. So the people who might have denied that five years ago um, are, are not going to deny it now. And for that matter, people who denied it in, in uh, October of 2020 might not deny it now. And so right. what, what will be some helpful like step-by-step, step, some, some uh, principles to go off of and then combine that with practical action? So one of the things you want to do is when they come after you, you want a sizable number of people that they're coming after, most of whom are up to speed on what is actually happening, right? So if you just have a big church and the, and the commitment of the people at the church is that we're willing to come to this place once a week and have the minister talk about his personal experiences, if that's how much buy-in you've got, that's not gonna, that's not gonna cause them to go to the arena. The, it, it's just not enough. So the people, the people have to be taught and educated biblical worldview thinking. And this is why you need the infrastructure of a K through 12 school. So one of the things I do um, as a pastor every spring and summer, uh, when the kids, the, the kids who graduate from Logos School or Logos Online, or uh, we have some homeschool co-ops here, and we got, you know, Basically, 98% of the kids, the school-age kids in our church, and there are hundreds of them in that category, are in a classical Christian school. They're, they're getting a Christian education. And the ones who aren't getting a Christian education, there's generally some story behind, you know, uh, a court order, you know, something like that, uh, a na nasty divorce in a court order. So we don't have a rule that you have to have your kids in a private Christian school. It's not a condition of membership, but it is part of the culture. So it's just part of the cultural expectation. This is what we do. But the thing that's wonderful is every spring and summer, I do an exit interview when the, for the, with the graduates as the pastor. Some of the kids are going to New St. Andrews. Some of the kids are going to go to the University of Idaho. Some of them are going to go to Hillsdale or you know different places. And so I talk to them and I, I interview them. Who are your friends? What would you change about Logos if, if you could change anything? Uh, and I get into, are you, uh, tell me about your devotional life um, as measured by Bible reading and prayer. And one of the things I've been greatly heartened by is these kids are daily Bible readers. 90, 95% of them are daily Bible readers. They're in the word. And as part of their education, they've read through the Bible a couple of times, right, the whole thing. And so when I'm preaching to kids who've grown up in this, I don't have to take five minutes out of the sermon to explain that Abraham lived before David did. Right. Or, you know, I'm, it, is a, it is a vast difference preaching to biblically literate people. 
it's a it's a huge difference preaching to people who've read a book who who not only read their Bibles but who also read Christian literature who are uh, up to speed on some of the cultural political issues they're pro life and they know why they're pro life they're against homosexual marriage and they know why they're against homosexual marriage and and so on that means that when they come after us there's going to be a significant number of us who know what the issues are and who if somebody gets arrested there will be lots of cameras right 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 so when the when the one of our deacons got arrested at our psalm sing um, back in September when he got arrested at the psalm sing we had lots of footage of it and it, that blew up and was a national thing and basically we wanted to, we've gotten to the point where taking us on would be formidable right right and so when you look at at um, other institutions, if you look at, say, what they did in Lynchburg, Virginia, would be another example of where these sorts of things don't have intergenerational longevity in terms of what they were to what they are. How are you prepared to ensure that Moscow is something that has that has longevity as a cohesive Christian community? Yeah. So that is the pressing question that you see all the way through the Bible, right? Um, how can you, uh, the Lord gives a great victory, a great reformation and revival. Just go through the book of Judges. Great deliverance. Then the people turn to idolatry, and then they get in trouble, and then God raises up a deliverer. There's another cycle where you go through it again. Um, so one of the things we are thinking a great deal about is the handoff to the next generation. So our our generation in the in the Moscow work here, our generation, mine, uh, people in their sixties, we were the founding generation of this work, but we're in the process of bringing the next generation up to speed and including them. So, for example, um, I'm on I'm still serving on the Logos school board, but we also have one, two, three, at least three alums of this of logos serving on the board the next generation uh next generation down and they they grew up in this system and they are serving shoulder to shoulder with us now so that when it's time for us to uh, go where biden is not president <laughs> and what a wonderful time that will be uh, oh what a relief <laughs> Um, when when it's time for us to be done serving our generation, I've I've been serving along these younger men for ten or twenty years, and I've got every confidence that they understand the root issues. Is one of the key focuses of what makes me a success is a focus on your own community and what's being done rather than what you see often a lot is these things become oriented towards conferences. Everybody wants to go national. Everybody wants to have a parachurch ministry that serves the whole country or they want to franchise something. Right. So, you know, you have these little Benedict Option TM communities where, you know, you do X, Y, Z, um, you know, everything comes prefabbed and then you set it up all over the place. But one of the things that I find interesting about uh, Moscow is that it's unique and dynamic 
dynamic. And, and while there are things to imitate, and you mentioned, you know, sort of five or six, five or six conditions, um, if you will, is one of the keys to the success, the fact that it is inward focus and isn't so worried about becoming sort of a national presence and going, going to all the big conferences and things like that. Uh, yes. So we've, uh, we've self-consciously worked on having our ministry focus be here. Now, not to the exclusion of people elsewhere. So, for example, we videotape our uh, Sunday morning sermons. Okay, we the, those and we post them on the internet and so so forth. But one of the things I make um, make a particular point of doing is I preach to the people in front of me, the the, the people who are here. I'm pastoring a, a congregation, and there's a little there's a little camera in the back that lets other people look through a window and see what we're saying to our people. But I don't want to start preaching to them in the first instance with the people here being the studio audience. I I don't want the people here to be the onlookers. I want the people here to be the members, the parishioners, the people, the sheep who are being fed. And then other people can observe and take notes and God bless them. But we don't want to get the cart and the horse, uh, mixed up on on that so we've led the our elders have made certain principal decisions on um videotaping uh the messages there's one camera in the back of the church um and nobody is to be filmed uh from the front with them worshiping god or praying or whatever because we want everybody to keep their focus on what we're doing here so uh, just as, sort of a, as, as a final wrap up, as you look at, you know, the next four years ahead, um, what would a cautionary note uh, to Christians be? What's a mistake you think we're likely to make and a way to avoid making it? Okay. Uh, actually, can I give you two mistakes? Yeah. <laughs> um, one mistake would be, in, in, let's say the four years of Biden, Biden's presidency, the, um, the first mistake would be to capitulate as though this is just another administration. I don't think there's any way that we can read it that way responsibly. I believe that this is going to be a key testing point. So I would tell um, those Christians who are hungry for everything to get back to normal, um, mm. it's not going to. Right, this, so this is not, uh, you, you can't, and it might pretend to get back to normal, and the temptation for some peace-loving Christians would be to go along with that pretense. Okay. The other temptation would be for Christians who radicalized too quickly, who are ready to man the ramparts right away. Um, let's say the bomb-throwing brethren who want to um, say, you know, come and get me coppers uh, sort of thing. I think that we, what we need to do is be praying for a lesser a responsible lesser magistrate that we can align with, be looking for God's appointed flashpoint. I think there's going to be a flashpoint, and I think we should want to be in line and ready to go when that flashpoint comes. Uh, and I can't tell you right now what it's going to be, but I don't think uh, some crazed right-wing guy on the Internet telling me that this is the flashpoint, well, that's we shouldn't be excitable. We shouldn't be fanatics. But we should be ready to go when it's clear that God wants us to. 
Um, what do you mean by flashpoint? Oh, um, let's say, and I'm not saying one one thing or another about Trump as a man here, but let's say the FBI comes to arrest Trump. Right. Okay. That that would be a flashpoint. Right. Right. So so um, when when uh, Trump's crowds were yelling about Hillary, lock her up, lock her up, lock her up. That uh, that indicated that sentiment was there. But I thought from the from the beginning, it's just bad optics um, to have the losing candidate in an election go straight to jail. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because what you're what you're saying is that okay, we don't want anybody to concede ever. We you know we've everything has gotten to the point where it's so inflamed, and I think that I think that we're basically at that point now. I think Biden has got a hard left wing. They're rioting in Portland right now um, against Biden. Right, so these these people are hard left progressive. Uh, people who have no use for Biden, he's too much of a conservative for them. And I think, oh, man, how did we get? How did we get into this funhouse? Well, uh, I, th- I think that that would be a political flashpoint. A, uh, a flashpoint that I would prefer would be um, Newsom sending in state troopers to arrest John MacArthur. You know, right. Something like that. That would be that would be a flashpoint, um, and the flashpoint would cause the country, all the divisions that are currently in place and currently visible, uh, the the San Andreas fault would turn into the earthquake, not just a fault line. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to discuss all of this with us. I really appreciate it. Well, you're very welcome. I I appreciate the invitation. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Reverend Douglas Wilson of Christ Church, Idaho. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And if you enjoyed it, please do head over to lifesightnews.com. Click on the podcast tab. You can subscribe to us on YouTube or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Thanks again once. Thanks once again so much for, for joining us this week and, and giving the show a listen. We do hope you'll join us again next week. Bye for now.